Hello and welcome to the latest episode of The Shindig, an archaeology podcast brought to you by the Red River Archaeology Group. I'm Dr. Tom Horn and he's... I'm Luke Barry. Not a we'll an, Just, just yeah, regular yeah, Luke Barry. He's, he's <laughs> still very highly skilled and has worked in the field importantly as well. And we were talking about an amazing site in the field today. It was the Trumpington mm-hmm. Cross Burial. Uh, a burial from the, the, the latter 7th century uh, in Cambridgeshire. You may have heard of it. Um, an amazing sort of pectoral cross, so a sort of gold and garnet. So these are coloured stones, a Christian cross that was placed uh, sort of near the neck of this 16-year-old, we think roughly, mm-hmm. who was buried probably in, I say, the end of the, the 600s um, on a bed. So there's a bed that survives well. There's an amazing exhibition on at the moment at the Museum of uh, Anthropology, Archaeology and Anthropology at Cambridge. Um, and we had a chat with uh, with Emma, Sam and Alice, um, amazing academics that are doing mm-hmm. incredible research into the hard science of isotopic analysis, analyzing the teeth and the bones. And we have Emma who's talking about the fact that this is one of these amazing, very rare bed burials. It speaks to a lot about how Christianity was spreading in in, in the in the seventh century in England. And uh, yeah, look, we, your, we your previously thoughts. did a podcast with Emma. If you want to go back through the archives and give that a listen to her, even before you listen to this one, if, if you're interested in the subject, because um, her background on that is fantastic in that podcast as well as her, um, I suppose, explanation of it in this one as well. It, it's incredible. It's a great podcast. We just spoke before we started recording. It's one of our favourite ones that we've done so far. And hopefully it'll be uh, one of your favourites. Enjoy. Thank you guys for, for joining us um, for this very special episode about the Trumpton Cross burial. Um, now, of course, I've done all the readings. So I know all about it. But just imagine um, Luke has not read anything about the Trumpeting Cross burial. I'm sure he has, but I have. Could you? It doesn't necessarily mean your... I understand it, but I have read it. <laughs> no, <wait. laughs> oh, no, no, no. Sam sent me a paper the other day, and I had to read it several times, and then I kind of read, <laughs> I read the abstract about three times, and I, I understand the last sentence. I'll just go with that. Um, <laughs> so yeah, but can. Just imagine you're explaining to the general audience, and I say maybe from your own particular research interest, what the Trumpkin Cross burial is. You know, if you if you've got the sort of thirty seconds of elevator pitch, could you could you tell us? So you know, maybe starting with with Sam for this one, could you just tell us a little bit about the Trumpkin Cross burial? Yeah, I mean, it's a spectacular burial that was found just outside of Cambridge. Um, And it's a a young girl, a teenager, um, buried on a bed. And uh, see Emma's previous (laughs) shindig um, episode for all the ins and outs of what a bed burial is. But in essence, this teenager with some really impressive bling buried on a bed just outside of Cambridge, um, dated to the 7th century. Very exciting. All right, fantastic. And uh, Alice, what's your take on it? Yes, yeah, so from my kind of uh, perspective, I'm actually more interested in other time periods in Cambridge. So I was um, doing a lot of research in later medieval Cambridge. So I'm interested in the Trumpington burial as how she kind of fits in with the kind of longer time frame in Cambridge and the sort of development and the uh, movement of people and and uh, society in the area. So that was kind of my perspective on it. Okay, that, that's bad. I mean, that's the thing that we quite like. Uh, um, the shindig is not just the thing we're talking about. We try and bring in 
other archaeology because you know it's a commercial archaeology firm we do encounter all sorts of different sorts of archaeology as you know I, I say that and then I'm going to now move on to Emma we recorded about seventh century bed burials so um Emma, <laughs> can you tell us and maybe just talk a little bit about you know what was found in 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 the in the grave as well so people get an idea of you know the bling that that Sam mentioned and also the the fittings I believe for 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 the bed Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so my primary interest in it was as this bigger study that I did of bed burials. Um, so we know that she was buried in a bed because surrounding the body in the grave, there were these series of metal fittings. So they're bits of rusty iron. Um, they don't look like an awful lot when you find them, um, but they're really quite exciting because they tell us about um, the organic wooden construction, which has rotted away. Um, and so the metal fittings would originally have held bits of the bed together. And that's how we know that there's a bed there. Um, but if you're not interested in the rusty iron fittings, I don't know why you wouldn't be, but if you're not, um, then there is also some shinier objects in the grave. And so the most impressive one uh, that, that I think stands out to everyone is the cross. Um, it's quite small, actually. It's only a couple of centimetres across, um, but it's really beautiful, really finely made. Um, is this gold cross with lots of garnets set around the edge. Um, you can only really appreciate it when you look at it up close, just how high the quality of the workmanship is there. And um, could you just explain what a, a, a garnet is again hmm. to people that might not have, have heard of it much before? Yeah, it's a little red stone. Um, it's a gemstone. They mostly come from... Um, India, the Far East, um, they're not they're not local stones at all. So this is it's telling us something about the status of this person, that she's got this really finely made object with these precious materials that have been imported from far away. And this is happening. So we say again, we say seventh century and, and people might not know. We're talking about, I think, the third quarter. So we're talking about 650 to six. Seven five ish is that what we're thinking for the, the sort of date? Yeah, a little bit later than that because we've got a radiocarbon date on the grave. Um, now the radiocarbon date gives us quite a broad range, um, so that puts the burial from some point in the six sixties up until I think it's the seven seventies. So it gives us quite a long range that date, um, but we can narrow that down further by looking at the styles of the objects in the grave. Um, so those sorts of gold and garnet, um, the crosses, but also gold and garnet jewellery in general, that's a very 7th century thing. So even though the radiocarbon date is saying the 8th century is a possibility, we're pretty sure that's not the case. Um, we're pretty sure she dates to some time from the 660s up to the end of the 7th century. And people might have heard or seen similar ones. We're thinking of like Sutton Who and also a similar petrol cross, you know, one that's held on the chest at St. Cuthbert's burial as well. Is that is am I right in saying that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, there's not really very many of these other pectoral crosses around. Um St. Cuthbert's is probably one of the best known ones, but that's actually quite an unusual one because it's being found in a male grave. Um, all of the others that we have are found in female graves or associated with women. All right. OK, we'll, we'll definitely get on to that point. But now, Emma, while, while, while you're um, in, in the mood for talking about it more generally, I would like to then know what is, you know, this fits in with your research. What is the sort of wider context of the Trumpton Cross burials, as we'll call it, in terms of 
sort of local, sort of regional, this sort of kingdom level, but also a sort of more international. It's it's a bit of, you know, not, not the word for the time, but that's the thing. Where, where does it sit within sort of like England and where does it sit within a sort of European context? Mm -hmm. um, so something that you see in the seventh century in particular is that most people are getting fewer and fewer objects being buried in their graves with them. Um, but you have a small section of society that are getting these incredibly rich burials. Um, and you mentioned Sutton Hoo before. That's one of the most obvious examples. Um, but those sorts of male rich burials are very restricted in time to the start of the 7th century. And they die out quite quickly. Um, and for a lot of the 7th century, male burials are quite simple. They're quite unfurnished. Um, they're not rich at all. But with the female burials, later in the 7th century, you get this sudden appearance of um, this group of high status women. Um, and they stand out in the burial record because they've got gold with them. They've got these precious materials. Um, in terms of the number of objects, they're not that impressive compared to what went before. Um, so if you think about how much the Trumpington girl has with her, it really isn't that much. Um, she's got the cross. She's got a couple of linked pins with her. Um, I think she's got a comb in there as well. Um, but it's not many objects, but the objects are really, really high quality. And that's something we uh, see repeated with several other women's burials in this period. And again, you were talking a little bit the number. Oh, sorry, this this now is it for Luke. <laughs> this is a this is a general thing. You you said earlier about uh, the excitement around these kind of things. For all of you, what is the feeling once you start to hear about something like this that that it's found that you get to do the research on it. Well, what feeling is there in that? In Obviously, you find something on a site, it's exciting, but to have something that seems to be rare or, or special or important, is there a growing excitement on site uh, among the academics? It, how does it feel for you? I mean, yeah, I yeah start, start with like... Sam, because also Sam, <laughs> yeah. I want to yeah talk about that wider context as well. Yeah, I mean, so for all of us, our work, well, Emma sort of talked about in, in the previous podcast how she got to hear about it getting excavated mm. when she was an undergrad. But for Alice and I, like we we sort of heard vaguely that this exciting thing had happened, but we really started to um, get to work with her during our PhD where, where we all met at, at Cambridge. And um, when I got the news from Thames and O'Connell, um, one of my supervisors and Sam Lucy, who was one of the excavators and um, the specialists who sort of written the most about the cross itself. Um, I was over the moon. I was like, I'm sorry, I get to, I get to work on, on who? <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. Um, because my uh, doctor work similar to Alice, but brought a picture. I was very narrow in my time focus. So only doing isotopes on early medieval people, predominantly in England, um, and then putting them in the context of Europe. And so when I got the chance to work on her, I was like, okay, right. This is suddenly, you know, very, very exciting. Um, yeah. don't know. I, the others are nodding. <laughs> I think we're all just like, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's the excited squeal, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's always um, really, really uh, exciting when this kind of burial um, or any kind of um, discovery happens kind of in real time um, to your research. I mean, obviously this was actually excavated quite um, in sort of 2011, but the research is ongoing so you can like actively contribute and it's um you can collaborate with the people that have actually excavated you can get all of the information 
people are still excited about it so you can really feel like you're in the moment and adding to the story um which is is really fantastic and um and it's really great when you can actually work with the the archaeology units that excavate the items because you get so much more information um so yeah it's really fantastic and uh emma yeah and it was the cambridge archaeological unit that excavated it wasn't it yeah so Emma, because you, you mentioned this on your podcast, which people can go back and listen to, but I think for people who haven't heard that yet, tell us a little bit about your excitement when, you know, this is this is coming out the ground while you're doing research. Yeah, so I first heard about this um, well before it was announced to the general public, well before it, it was publicised. Um, and it was when I was a, a second year undergraduate and I was doing the Anglo-Saxon archaeology course um, and Catherine Hills was giving us the lecture on burials um, and she put up this picture that she said she'd taken just the other day when she'd gone down to visit the site to see the excavations actually happening and and this burial was being discovered as she was there um, so it, it was really um, really formative as an undergraduate actually to get the sense of how that research happens and that there's finds going on all the time um, and our picture is constantly changing. Um, and yeah, to get that first hand was, was pretty special. And um, yeah, no, I think that's the thing to remember. So I remember being on site, my dad telling me that they'd, I was actually digging in a completely different thing. It was a Iron Age um, site. And my dad, and I was doing research on, on dirhams, these sort of silver silver coins that are in, uh, travel through the Viking world from Central Asia. And they'd found some more in, 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 in England like that. And again, you're just sort of like, <laughs> you don't really it's, it's difficult because it's it's too big and it kind of overwhelms you but here's that there's that childish you know excitement as well so i completely understand what what everyone here is is, is saying but to to sort of bring us back again to the drunken burial um and i was asking uh emma earlier and i just wanted to ask sam again this more general sort of terms that we're talking about this sort of you know this wider context within the sort of you know, what kingdom are we talking about in, in Cambridge at that time in terms of relationship to what's happening in, in continental Europe, if, if you'd like your perspective on, on that? Yeah, so I mean, what's really exciting about where Trumpington is and in the Cam Valley is it's it's kind of this, um, I guess, liminal zone, this sort of border zone. And during this period, it's sort of changing between East Anglia, so the big bulge, you know, that comes out the side of, of Britain, um, and uh, Mercia and sort of the what is now the Midlands, right? So we're we're kind of in this area. And John Hines and Emma and other people who do um, look a lot into grave goods have sort of talked about the fact that this area has this transitional nature in terms of what people have got in their graves. You know, they've got some stuff that the East Anglians have. They've got some stuff that the Mercians have got. Um, and because the cam dumps out um, into the North Sea, there's a really good um, you know, highway on the water there. So they've got lots of stuff from other kingdoms. Um, and so depending on what part of the 6th, 7th, 8th century you're talking about, they're kind of more Mercian and a little bit more East Anglian in the in the flavour of what they've got. Um, but what I think is quite exciting, both in terms of uh, the Trumpington Burial's isotopes and her grave goods is the fact that you can see all these connections. So you've got the Christian element, you know, there's the cross, um, the garnets, which Emma's said, you know, have had to have travelled a long way. Where they got, you know, turned into this beautiful um, piece of jewellery is is something up for debate. You know, was it made in England? Where did they chip off the little bits and turn them into that? And did she 
you know, at what point in her life has she sort of brought all of these aspects of her burial together because she's quite young. Um, and we know, spoiler alert, we know from the work that Alice and I have done that she didn't grow up in, in England and certainly nowhere near Trumpington. Um, so she's traveled a long way. Um, and part of what we're sort of grappling with now is how she fits in with all these other women, you know, these other bed burials, there's about 18 of them in England. How does she fit with the other people um, buried in beds on the continent that Emma's worked on um, and other high status women of the seventh century? So like Emma said, there's this emerging group of women in the seventh century, this small cluster in Cambridgeshire um, that are on this, you know, boundary zone between these two kingdoms, but also some that are found in Kent, um, some others that I've worked on in Oxfordshire. Um, and are they all similar? You know, is this a, a special group of women who've come from the same place? Could they be related? Um, or are they kind of all individuals who are just part of this phenomena um, that we now know as bed burials? You know, would they have seen themselves? Would they have known each other? Um, in life, you know, which I think lots of people like to ask us about. And, you know, it's it's a question really that we have to deal with radiocarbon dating, bringing all these interdisciplinary things together. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a complicated picture, but it's an exciting one. And she's kind of the, the linchpin that got us all to start to unravel this picture. And yeah, you, so again, you mentioned there Emma's research and the bed burials. And so I think I want to focus just a little bit more on that now, this connection to is some Alpine Southern German region. So I'm going to go to Emma now and see if she can a little bit more about maybe more, you know, sort of drilling down into those sort of specific connections between that sort of Southern German sort of Christian world uh, and and Cambridgeshire. And again, the, this liminal space, these borders between these sort of Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. So Emma, just your sort of thoughts on that. Yeah, I think the connections between England and Southern Germany are quite overlooked, really. It's not something that a lot of people talk about. You know, when you think about international connections in the early medieval period, you're looking at the North Sea world primarily. So links between England and Scandinavia and the Netherlands. Um, and that, yeah, that very much the North Sea as being this connection. Um and then if you're in somewhere like Kent, you look at connections with Francia. Um, you know, it's a very short hop across the English Channel. And we know there's a lot of political and cultural links between those two areas. Um, but I got thinking a bit more about South Germany when I was doing my PhD, um, which was this big overview of what people are putting in the graves with their dead right across Europe and how that changes over time. Um, and I noticed that What's going on in England is really, really similar to what's going on in southern Germany. Like in terms of the quantities of stuff they're putting in graves, um, in terms of the types of objects that they're favouring to bury with the dead, um, there's, there's so many similarities between England and southern Germany that you don't have, say, between England and Francia. Um, so I wonder, is there, is there something there? Is there something we're missing? Um, and then when you look at the beds in particular... Um, you know, bed burial is not a very common rite at all. Uh, as Sam said, there's only 18 of them that we've got in England. Um, there's not that many more when you look at the continent. Um, I think including the English ones, there's about 40 of them in total that we know about at the moment. Uh, and so many of the others are in southern Germany. Now, partially that has a little bit to do with preservation. Um, that some of the areas of southern Germany have really, really good organic preservation. 
So whereas in England, we're only finding the metal fittings, um, in Germany, we've got the whole beds. We've got the whole wooden bed frames coming out of the ground, which is incredible um, and gives us just a sense of what we're missing in other areas um, where we don't have that sort of organic preservation. So the fact that you're using the beds in southern Germany and in England and so many other grave goods, there's similarities. I did start to wonder, are we missing some cultural connections here? And it makes sense, because if you think about the Rhine River, um, the Rhine is this this huge, um, huge river, which is very easy to travel along. And that's linking southern Germany and central Germany into that North Sea world. Um, so it's just as easy to travel down the rivers to get to <laughs> as it is to get across to Scandinavia. Could you tell us a little bit more about this sort of amazing gold and, and garnet trumpeton cross? Uh, in the YouTube version now, it will be appearing. Um, you'll probably see it in the preview just of the, the podcast if you're if you're just listening to the audio version as well. But it is really worth checking out because it's, it's quite spectacular. As Emma had said earlier, it's very small, but it's 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 a beautiful, beautiful thing. And all the petrol crosses are just these incredible things. But could you so could you tell us a little bit about these? Pectoral crosses, maybe explain what they are a bit better than I have. Um, and maybe, you know, links, and we talked about St Cuthbert earlier, and particularly their association with high-status female burials of, of this period, this later 7th century, maybe starting with, with M and then moving on to Sam. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, so essentially what they are are little crosses which were placed on the chest of the dead, um, we think they probably would have been sewn onto clothing or to shrouds rather than being worn as a necklace necessarily. Um, although, I mean, they're, they're so high quality um, that it's it's un, it would be unusual to think that they'd just been created for death. So they probably were used in life in some way as well. Aren't the attachments, sorry to jump in, the attachments on the back, are they not relatively crude, but they show that, again, they could have been used attachment points for sewing on is that is that correct or am i yes wrong? Yeah. yeah 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 so that's how we know that they were sewn onto something they weren't just just placed there um they they could have been worn and probably were worn as well um and we we don't have very many of them in that exact style um although of course the use of cross imagery within graves is a little bit more common um maybe within necklaces on pendants things like that um I can think of a, a neighbouring high-status female burial. There's one from Westfield Farm in Ely where she doesn't have a pectoral cross, um, but she does have a cross on a necklace as part of this broader collection. Um, but the crosses are almost all associated with women. That's They're found in women's graves. Um, the one exception that I mentioned before is the one that's found with St Cuthbert. Um, that's a little bit unusual. Um, some people have suggested that it wasn't necessarily originally buried with him, that it might have been added later um, or that it might have been a gift from a significant woman, because um, this, this very overtly Christian display does seem to have been quite a feminine thing at this period. Is there any reason for that? Like, is there do we know? This might be a stupid question. I don't know. But do we know why that would have been a feminine thing? Sam, do you want to jump in on that one? <laughs> so um, what 
is really quite exciting about the seventh century is that women are playing a really dominant role in uh, Christianization. So mm. in this period, um, you know, you think about the the big saints because they're the guys, they're the books who have the, you know, saints' lives written about them, lucky them. <laughs> but actually um, when we're talking about England in this period um, with the sort of the re-Christianization, so like it, it was Christian under the Romans, but you have the Anglo-Saxon migration coming in, you know, paganism for a bit and then um this uh woman bertha queen bertha of kent um is kind of our first high status woman linked to this attempt to kind of get christianity back back in england um and so she's a frankish princess um she's christian um because the the franks are christian at this point and um Emma and other people have talked about this and on the other podcast as well, but um, she has letters backwards and forwards to the Pope saying, oh, do I really have to Christianize my husband? You know, he's a pretty solid pagan. They're like, yeah, no, it's your, it's your duty. It's your duty as a good wife to, to do this. Um, and women seem to be taking up um, this mantle to kind of Christianize um, quite strongly. So apart from some of the, the saints and the missionaries who were sent over by the Pope, women seem to be the the core cultural unit to kind of do this. Um, you know, some people have talked about it being their sort of persuasive power. You know, you marry Christian princesses to these pagan kings and they'll kind of use their womanly wiles. Um, but they're also the ones who are founding um, monasteries and really big, what are now, you know, huge cathedrals like Ely. Um, so that was founded by um, an Anglo-Saxon princess. Um, and so they're kind of the movers and shakers in, in the Christian world in England at this time. And so that's why we think that, you know, they might not be what we'd consider saints now, like Cuthbert, mm. but they were really, really important. And usually princesses, uh, you know, the, the upper echelons of the elite. So they had the money and the family connections to get these things, but also they were kind of the the political um savvy of of seventh century christendom would you say that's kind of fair to say emma yeah pretty much yeah. yeah especially with the um the ability to found monasteries you know it gives women this extra arena in which they can exercise power they might not necessarily be able to exercise political power in this time period um you know they might not be able to lead armies but they can found monasteries and so Christianity is also quite an attractive religion for women to 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 help them gain status with, in their own right. Is that? I mean, that's interesting. I mean, just sorry. I'll, I'll just, when you're talking about that and the power of women, because I remember reading, you know, undergraduate Gregory of Tours, and I remember the Frankish queens were quite powerful. But now that you're talking about, it, I'll need to re read it again because I don't know if that context. Because again, usually it was, you know, as Sam was saying about the feminine wells, or they were kind of poisoning, and they were kind of these darker figures. But equally, what was undeniable was that they were very powerful. But I don't know if that was ever in a in a Christian manner. I don't know if if you've looked at these sort of cross cultural parallels with with history as well as the archaeology. Yeah, so we've dealt with it a bit in. Um a project that I've just been involved with, with Helena Hamerow at, at Oxford. It's it's all been about these seventh century women um, and aiming at like these very high status women as well as some of the others to kind of see, you know, what's, what's happening with everybody. Um, and we were admittedly mostly looking in an English context, but uh, the Rhineland, like we've talked about, just kind of kept on coming up and up. And even though Gregory of Tours and and, and Frankie and Bertha are kind of the the place where people kind of look to immediately, um, because 
they were writing about it. We know St. Augustine, um, who's, you know, the missionary comes into Kent, you know, at the behest of uh, the Pope and, and Bertha. Um, but actually there might be these other sort of women um, and these sort of writings that might actually hint at their power. And certainly in the Byzantine court as well, they were really, really influential. Um, and so I think it's not England and, and Francia specific. It's actually like Emma was saying, it was attractive to to women to kind of use this as a power arena. And that was not necessarily just in the seventh century. I think in the Byzantine courts, it even started a little bit earlier, but I'd have to defer to some of the historians on that one about, you know, their involvement in the church as a way to kind of exercise their voices in, in places that they couldn't usually, you know, exert power. And again, Sort of moving then now to looking at because I think people will be interested now in this the isotopic the the sort of the hard science mm. now sort of looking into that and I'll start start with 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 Sam on that are we getting when you're looking at isotopic and, and Alice will ask so will Sam and Alice just your thoughts on what the isotopic is evidence in terms you're looking at sort of teeth and bones for teeth particularly for isotopic are you looking at maybe ADNA and that sort of aspect what is that telling us then beginning to tell us in Trumpington and other burials about these links and um you know uh, in in the sort of seventh century you know so maybe a little introduction of what the hard science does what it can do and equally what it can't tell us it's not a magic it's not a magic wand but yeah, so starting with Sam and moving to Alice, just tell us maybe more of that technical side in, in relation to the these links between continental, so, you know, probably high status women and and the south of England or England in general. Yeah, so I'll sort of talk about the the links that we're finding, and then I'll throw it over to Alice to kind of explain how we then get this, if if that's all okay with everyone. Um, essentially, what what the isotope science, which is is from the teeth um, from these individuals, is telling us that there are these long distance connections. So that is really quite clear. Um, three of the bed burials that we've looked at from Cambridgeshire, um, so Trumpington and two from Edix Hill, they've all got quite similar um, signatures in their teeth, and that suggests to us that it is very unlikely. I think that. Um, last round of stats that we did looks at less than 50% probability, probably actually even lower for a couple of them, closer to less than 20% probability of coming from Britain at all, um, let alone from the South Cambridgeshire area. And where they look more likely to have come from is colder areas, areas off chalk, you know, that that sort of eastern part of Britain is very chalky. Um, and so where that initially led me to think was the North Sea, like Emma said, we go, oh, yep, the cam, and you can get up a boat there. And where am I looking at um, up there for other women and other isotopic signatures that look similar? And then actually with chatting to Emma, um, we were then going, oh, actually, no, that looks like it's more alpine, closer to southern Germany and that area, because archaeologically it makes sense and isotopically it matches up. So kind of talking about what it can and can't tell us, it goes, okay, it's colder, it's wrong type of geology for where they're buried. Um, okay, I've got a couple of options on maps here, um, but we need that context to kind of narrow it down. And I think like you say, you know, when we get ancient DNA and we start layering these things up, you can add really interesting um, things together and creates sort of an osteobiography, but also a whole biography of a, of a person bringing all these elements together. But I'll then hand over to Alice to actually sort of explain how that all works and what we do in a lab. Yeah, thank you. So, yeah, 
Isotope analysis now is pretty common in archaeology. Um, it gets applied um, to all sorts of different um, sites and samples. And it very much works on a very broad principle of you are what you eat. So um, all of the food and the liquids that you consume have a chemical composition and that can be that can vary based on um, environment or um, different um, physiological processes. And that chemical um, composition becomes incorporated into your own tissues that are forming at the time um, of the of when you're eating that or drinking that liquid. Um, so we can rely on this. this. This sort of chemical signature is preserved in the tissues, in archaeological bones and teeth and, and, and uh, other tissues. And we can rely on this to answer questions um, largely about diet and mobility in the past. So um, quite common ones you've probably heard of, we look at carbon and nitrogen isotopes to think about largely diet. And then what Sam was just referring to, we can look at um, isotopes of oxygen and strontium to think about mobility in the past. So those are very much um, related to things like climatic change um, and uh, geology, as Sam was saying. So they're really, really useful for thinking about where people um, uh, spent their childhoods because we're looking at um, them in the tissues and teeth which formed during childhood um, and then compare that to the chemical signatures of um, the food and the water that were in the area where they were buried and see if they match. Um, in terms of diet, um, as I say, we look at carbon and nitrogen um, isotopes, and these are very, very broadly related to the types of plants that you're eating. Um, so carbon can very broadly tell us between plants that have different uh, photosynthetic pathways. So basically plants that are good at growing in moderate climates like Britain or plants that are good at growing in hot climates, which are not very common in British diets in, in the past. Um, and nitrogen can tell us about um, animal protein consumption. It very much works like uh, on, along the food chain, the amount of uh, enrichment in uh, nitrogen 15 increases. So um, we can look at sort of things about whether people were eating um, animal protein such as meats, dairy, um, uh, and or not, if they perhaps have more of a vegan diet. We can't distinguish between animal proteins. So we can't say if someone's definitely eating meat rather than cheese, <laughs> which is a bit of a shame, but um, yeah, it's, it's quite useful for broad scale comparisons um, of diet um, across uh, different people. And that's that, that's brilliant because it, it brings us into another podcast because we're always cross promote that we did with, with Kat Jarman and she was looking at the reptin burials and the marine reservoir effects. So I'll just ask you a little bit about that and you can link in. I'll, I'll start, obviously, I want Luke to talk about the marine reservoir effect and then maybe pass on to Alice um, on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I could make something up if you want. I could make something up. <laughs> but yeah, Alice, did you, did you, is that the kind of thing then that you, you have to also take cognizance of, you have to look into and, and apply the marine reservoir effect and maybe explain roughly what that is again to people who, who don't know about the, the older forms of carbon that we take in in our, in our bodies. Yeah, so actually I don't deal with that very much. That's probably more something that Emma would deal with. But on the sort of the principle of it is that um, uh, there are these reserves of older carbon, as it were, 
um, particularly in um, marine um, environments. And so if you're eating a diet that has a high amount of marine products in it, that can then change your isotopic composition, as I was saying. Um, and this can affect mostly radiocarbon dating. So maybe Emma would like to come in on how that um, uh, influences that. Yeah, so essentially, um, the when you've got carbon, radiocarbon being produced in the upper atmosphere, um, that gets into plants through through their photosynthesis um, very quickly, makes it into the food chain very quickly, is incorporated into people's bones. Um, but when you get it absorbing into the ocean, um, it, car the radioactive carbon absorbs at the ocean surface and then the ocean currents drag it down into the depths. And this radioactive carbon is circulating in the oceans for quite a long time before it gets into the food chain. Um, and so that can be up to up to 400 years. And that's the source of, of difference you can be looking at there, which means that if you are someone who is eating a lot of fish, then um, that can affect your radiocarbon dates because you've got all of this older carbon being incorporated into your diets. So if you're radiocarbon dating, it's really important to do the isotopes as well, to look at the carbon and the nitrogen that Alice was talking about. Um, it's actually it's a slightly different version of carbon. Um, so the carbon that Alice is talking about is, is stable carbon, carbon-13. Um, the carbon that you use for radiocarbon dating is carbon-14, which is radioactive and decays. So you'll look at the carbon-13 and the, the nitrogen, um, and that can tell you how much fish roughly someone is eating. Um, and from there, you can then use that figure to try and recalculate the radiocarbon dates to take account of that. That's fantastic. And we're going to clip that because I actually understood <laughs> the difference. I mean, Kat explained it very well, but there were some areas that was like, but because we didn't depth, go into depth in the podcast about how then you differentiate the different types of carbon. So that is, that's really great. And it will help really, it helps me. So, I mean, that's the, <laughs> that, that that's important. But I mean, what I'm going to do is just do a, a terrible sort of uh, 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 gear change and say, well, fish is important in, in Christianity is, as we were talking about fish and marine reservoirs. Could we now then talk about Christianity um, in terms of that spread and that movement that we're talking about? We've alluded to it earlier. Um, I know, I think we'll start with Emma and then move to, to Sam on, on this and the importance of spreading Christianity and maybe what, you know, what they're trying to do with, with the St. Augustines of, of this world and what is trying to happen in this sort of wider picture of, you know, Christianity being used as a sort of almost a political sort of tool in, the, in that period. So we've got the records from 597 AD um, where we know of St. Augustine coming over from the Frankish world. Uh, he's actually sent by the Pope. Uh, sent by Pope Gregory the Great. Uh, and he comes to the court of King Ethelbert and Queen Bertha in Kent. Um, and he's welcomed there because, as we've said already, Queen Bertha was Christian. Um, she was part of this Christianization process. She wanted to, to help convert her new people. Um, and so he preaches there and he establishes the monastery at Canterbury, which remains hugely important throughout all of medieval history and up to today. Um, and he begins that conversion process. And he's followed by several other missionaries who go up into different places. So you've got St. Paulinus, who goes up to Northumbria to convert the Northumbrians. Um, 
but this is quite a, a limited record. It's a you know, it's just telling us about the missionaries, it's telling us about the royal courts that they converted. Um, and there's a bit of a question about how quickly that spreads throughout the ordinary population. Um, one of the ways we can see that is through some of these, these crosses in the burial record that tell us that Christianity is spreading beyond just those royal courts, although still within quite a high status context at this point. And that's something that, I mean, again, go back to Gregory of Tours, what you often find is it spreads quite quickly in the elites, but then you get all these, it, they could be Irish, sort of English, sort of, sort of, they become saints because they get martyred quite often. They're, they're, they're wandering off and they're trying to get, you know, Pagani, paganism comes from essentially villagers who are either slow or create this sort of syncretic, they create this, they take elements of Christianity as we know the you know, Scandinavians are doing later in the Viking Age, you sort of you sort of pick and choose because that's what you're used to in the sort of you know, pagan, pagan, pagan world. So maybe that's something for uh, uh, another podcast is to look at what, because we all talk about the elites, but it's interesting and finding what, what's happening with the actual, you know, because that only goes so far. If you don't get the bulk of population, you get that tipping point as you got with with Islam in, 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 uh, in Spain, for example, there's a tipping point and then it very quickly speeds up. So that's, that's, we'll stick a pin in that look we'll make a note that's another <laughs> another other podcast on that but again now just to bring it back to to the trumpeton cross burial and again uh sort of bed burials why are people being buried in, in 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 beds i mean we've talked about this a bit in again emma's podcast but again for this podcast people that haven't heard that yet could you just explain why you'd want to be buried in a bed as, as opposed to a coffin or or or, or on a, a beer or something like that Mm -hmm. um, so within England, and it's important to stress that this is just within England, um, bed burials are appearing in this very specific context. So they're all 7th century. Um, they are all women where we can determine the sex. Um, and quite a lot of them also have these crosses with them. So they are part of this elite Christian feminine repertoire that we see appearing in the 7th century. Um, and so some people have suggested that they are specifically Christian objects themselves, that there's this association between beds and religion. Um, and that does sort of make sense, because when you think about Christian beliefs about the afterlife, there is this idea that you, know, you are just you're sleeping, you're waiting until you're going to be resurrected on Judgment Day. Um, and a bed is a very comfortable place to sleep to wait until that happens. Um, you would think if there were widespread Christian associations, then uh, you might see them in more graves. And we don't, uh, unless I think possibly we are we are missing quite a few bed burials because, as I said, we only have the English ones where they have the metal fittings. Uh, and if people were being buried in those sort of continental beds, which are just pure wood, which don't have the metal fittings with them, um, if we find that in the archaeological record, it's impossible to tell if you've got a coffin or a bed or a beer. Um, you just know you've got some sort of wooden structure. So we're probably missing some beds, but they're still not widespread enough to be, I think, these purely Christian objects. Um, I think they're quite a high status thing, because if you think about the investment of burying a bed in a grave, that's an expensive piece of furniture that you're getting rid of there. You've got to be high status to be able to do that. Um, so I think they're a status thing. Um, 
And I think they maybe take on some of these associations of Christianity, but that's not because they're Christian objects in themselves. That's because of the context that they're being used at this time. And that's the thing is, I mean, going back to this dead, don't bury themselves. So this is very much, it's a community that are just making this decision, aren't, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And, and that's, we'll, we'll go into that later about, you know, what is this sort of community that may have been may have been around this now, but just to get back to, because I'm fascinated to hear more, while I'm still basically remembering the different carbons, <laughs> I want to now ask again about this, this you are what you eat um, analysis of, of the bones and the, the, and the teeth and you're talking about the conclusions that uh, that you've come to about mobility and, and, and markers that determine sort of differing protein uh, intake. So Alice, would you maybe tell us more specifically about that and obviously in, in uh, general, but also in relation specifically to Trumpington Cross burial? Yes, so between Sam and I, um, we have been carrying out quite a lot of uh, isotopic research on um, early medieval burials in the area. Um, there were, Originally, some carbon and nitrogen isotope analysis done on the Trumpington burial by Tamsin O'Connell as part of the um, original uh, monograph report. And this was done on bone. And that tells us about diet in the sort of later years of this um, woman's life. Um, so she actually was only um, around sort of, sort of 14 to 16 when she died. So it is still telling us kind of about sort of early teen life. And that that isotope analysis kind of was telling us that she had, um, for all intents and purposes, a fairly typical diet. We were maybe hoping that she would have something exciting. She was stood out from the crowd, but actually it was pretty normal. So we can say that she was eating what we'd call C3 plants. So as going back to what I was saying before about the different photosynthetic pathways, that's plants that just grow in kind of temperate, moderate environments. So pretty normal, what we'd expect. In terms of the nitrogen isotopes, again, she was probably eating moderate amounts of animal proteins. Um, so looking at the zooarchaeological evidence from the site, for example, I think the main uh, type of uh, bone they were finding was cattle. So it's probably she was eating maybe a little bit of beef, um, maybe milk, cheeses. As I say, we cannot tell the difference between them, but not in huge amounts, but you know, it was there. What was not in her diet, which is really interesting, was evidence for um, any kind of regular consumption of marine or it maybe even freshwater fish. And that is really key as we're going back to those points about Christianization and things. She just wasn't, there wasn't this evidence of, of huge amounts of marine protein consumption. What Sam and I did to add to that bone data is that we also analyzed a tooth from uh, the Trumpington burial. And that tells us about the period of time when that tooth was developing, so a little bit earlier in her life. So then we can compare her childhood diet to her adult diet. And again, what was interesting there is actually her nitrogen isotope values from her tooth were a little bit higher than her bone. So that tells us that Earlier in her life, she was probably eating a little bit more or more regular amounts of animal proteins. So something changed from her childhood to her adulthood, which, or late teens, I guess. Um, so that's really interesting and kind of maybe uh, supports the, the sort of uh, oxygen and strontium analysis that Sam was doing in terms of something changing in her life. Maybe she was, uh, along with uh, migration, her diet also changed as she kind of moved or 
the at least the, where she was getting her food from was from a different environment with a different uh, isotopic composition. So again, what Sam was saying about layering all these different types of evidence, uh, we can start building up this really interesting picture. Um, and I think actually most striking was that she doesn't stand out from other burials in the area. Um, she's quite normal compared to other burials at um, Trumpington. And we've looked at other bed burials, um, for example, at Edix Hill. And again, the isotope, the, the carbon and nitrogen isotope values for those bed burials, very normal <laughs> and fit very much within, within the other uh, individuals buried uh, there. So whilst they are incredibly exciting high status burials, it doesn't mean that they were feasting on something the rest of the population was not having access to. So or potentially anyway. So um, yeah, really interesting. And yeah, Sam, just your, yeah, your take on, on that. Yeah, no. So, I mean, exactly what Alice said, she, we were kind of hoping there might be some sort of red flag there, but um, it, it, the main thing that we found out about diet in this period is everyone's pretty boring. Um, so you need, you need Vikings, you need the stuff that Tom's really interested in for that to suddenly make a difference. And they, you know, anyone who's listened or read anything by Kat Jarman, you know, Vikings love fish. They, they are fishy. They, there's a red flag there when you get their isotopes back and you're like, what's the bet that the radiocarbon date might have to get recalibrated because they're fishy and they're, and they're Viking. Um, and most people are eating very low, um, some even vegan type diets or what would be equivalent to veganism today. So almost no animal protein to moderate protein. That's most people, regardless of your status in this period. So some work that um, I've done as well as kind of shown that regardless of if you're male, female, how old you are, what status, how much bling you've got in your grave, it doesn't particularly matter. No one's eating a ton of meat. That seems to be seasonal you know this is in a time before supermarkets and being able to refrigerate your meat you know so again kind of what Alice was saying about dairy versus meat we can't kind of distinguish but you're eating those things seasonally it's not a huge glut of stuff there might be cracking great big feasts like we you know know about from epic poems like Beowulf but those are so few and far between for very special occasions you know the elites aren't coming out like some sort of carnivore you know which is kind of what initially we all thought might be the case but when you actually think about how regularly you can put one of those shindigs on plug for the podcast there that's gonna be really really rare so even for somebody as really high status and special as the trumpington um bed burial um, she wasn't able to pull on those resources more than anyone else per se. At least not that we can tell um, from isotopes, because like Alice said, it's a very broad brush stroke sort of thing, but she's not looking like a carnivore. So that tells us it's not tons of meat all the time. Okay. And, and Emma, from your perspective then, does that make sense in terms of the sort of context of what you maybe expect from, from this uh, young woman's life? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I am very much not an isotope person. I rely on Sam and Alice to do all of the isotope work for me. The hard, the hard work, Emma? Is that the difficult? <laughs> different work. The different work. <laughs> let's different, say yeah. that. Um, but it, it doesn't surprise me that much. But I think because I've spent so much time talking to to Sam and Alice uh, about these things. Um I think the absence of fish is something that I find interesting um, because I know that was something that Sam was aiming to to look at when she started this research was to see 
can we see an increase in fish consumption associated with Christianization? Because you know, in the, the Christian lifestyle, you've got all these rules about the days when you can't eat meat, um, but they were a little bit flexible about what they classed as meat. Uh, and so fish on those days, absolutely fine. Um, so I know that, that Sam was expecting to see maybe a bit of an increase in fish consumption across the seventh century. And you know, that would give us an insight into what I was talking about before, about how Christianity spread among the ordinary population who aren't written about in these historical records. Um, so the fact that we don't see that, um, I, I find that really interesting. Um, I mean, maybe it tells us that, that Christianity wasn't that widespread, but actually what I think it tells us is that um, the, the ways in which the Christian rules are being interpreted at this period are very flexible. Um, and all of those ideas about fasting and, and the importance of avoiding meat, that's something that comes in a little bit later on and isn't relevant to this very early Christianization. Yeah. So we've got a flexitarian teenager. Mm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I mean, I think the other thing to point out is that freshwater fish are notoriously tricky to try to pin down isotopically. Um, so I start like every young PhD student does with very firm ideas about what they're going to go and look out and find. Um, but that's where bringing in sulfur isotopes is, I think, going to be an increasingly important thing. And that's you know, something that we're looking into um, to kind of bring into this period because that can help a little bit better um, than carbon and nitrogen can because freshwater fish are really, really frustrating they, because essentially it's a terrestrial type ecosystem. Their carbon looks very similar to the carbon that you're going to have um, for sheep and cattle, but the nitrogen is going to be different because they're eating different stuff compared to, you know, something that's grazing on grass. So we do get small hints at certain cemeteries like Westfield Farm Ely that Emma mentioned earlier about where there's another high-status teenage girl um, who does look freshwater fishy, we think. There's like the strongest sense at that site more than anywhere else that there's some freshwater fish happening. But what became apparent with this is that it's where you're eating um, that dictates that rather than your Christian status. So Ely means island of the eels and back, you know, it's now on the river, but very much uh, not too boggy underfoot, depending on what day you go. Um, but it was an island uh, back in the seventh century. And that's part of the reason why they slapped a big monastery on there. Um, and so they were probably just exploiting local resources, whereas this teenager growing up potentially or her early years being um, in southern Germany, probably just eating, you know, what you can farm around you. And likewise, for that period that she was possibly living or very briefly, we think, in and around Trumpington. Likewise, it's, yes, you've got the river, but probably that farmland's more important to what you're able to eat consistently, whereas up in the fens, in the boggy marshy environments, you're going to be exploiting those freshwater resources. So, and I think what you were just, yeah, saying there, just, I think, continue in the same vein, you know, what is the the future of this really exciting research in terms of the hard science, in terms of the contextual archaeology, maybe you'd all like to bring in again, you're talking about the sulfur stuff there, maybe a little bit more about that to begin with Sam and then then Alice and, and Emma and just tell us about, you know, what's the future of, you know, you are what you eat, what's the future of bed burials, you know, what, what are you guys working on at the moment? So Sam, just a little bit more about what, what you were saying there. Yeah, so we're looking at, at bringing sulfur in. So you do it on, on collagen, the same sort of extractions that we did to get the carbon and nitrogen so that's great there's no further destruction needed from our work so far to 
bring that in. We're adding new types of isotopes, new chemical elements and their isotopes into this toolkit all the time. So I'm sure probably, you know, when we talk about this in a couple of years, we'll be like, oh, actually, we want to add this thing. We want to add this element and this element. Um, because it's just uh, geologists and ecologists are doing the hard work for us to kind of work out what these things can actually tell us about the environment. And then archaeologists are great magpies, right? Where we go, oh, actually... <laughs> That sounds great. I'll take that. So sulfur is one of those ones that's becoming more and more regularly used because it's so handy with the freshwater fish um, sort of side of things, as well as um, an extra thing for mobility, because it's really good at telling um, uh, sea spray effect from coastal zones. So if you've grown up or lived somewhere coastally and then you move inland, that tends to show up quite nicely. Um, and there's other things that we're adding all the time to the tooth enamel that uh, I know Alice has been grappling with some of that as well. So, and of course, there's ADNA and all the all the shiny toolkit that we can apply here. Um, but I'll throw over to Alice because she can talk a bit more about all of that as well. Yeah. So another um, another tool that we're trying to use is called incremental dentine isotope analysis. So um, what we're talking about before when I was talking about bone or tooth um, and when we're analyzing those, we're looking at a big um, average signal over the formation of that tissue. So in bone, this could be 20 years maybe of average of your diet in your tooth. It's the period that your tooth is growing. So for some teeth that can be over 10 years of your life, for example. So um, a technique that Julia Beaumont and others have developed is slicing the dentine of the tooth up into tiny little like one millimeter slices. And because the tooth develops incrementally from uh, crown to root, um, if you slice the tooth up and then analyze each slice, you get like this really amazing fine detail about childhood diet, basically. Um, so we can then do carbon and nitrogen isotopes um, and sulfur as well on those increments and think about childhood diet in, in terms of, of years, of months, in rather than this broad average. Um, so we uh, were increasingly using that in archeology. span um, We have done this on uh, one of the Edicts Hill um, bed burials, and that's something we're working on at the moment um, in publication. Um, and it just gives us so, so much more of an insight into childhood, um, diet, but also any peaks and troughs that might relate to um, periods of nutritional stress or just periods of change. So when we're talking about the Trumpington burial, where we're like, oh, something clearly changed between her early childhood and her teenage years in terms of movement and diet. If we have these incremental um, dentine slices, we can start looking at this in much greater detail. And maybe we can even say, okay, it actually was at this this point something happens um, so that's something that's more and more commonly being applied in archaeology and is a really exciting um, development and um, before we move on to sort of Emma's take on this and uh, this bed burial research just the thought there for, say for example if you broke your leg and there was new bone growth could you in future or do people do it now where you could analyze that sort of bone independently because it's almost like a moment in time or is that something that's just complete rubbish that I've <laughs> it's made up in the spot. <laughs> so it's what we normally do in isotope analysis is we would definitely avoid any pathological bone because when your body's repairing itself, um, if you've had a big traumatic event for a start, your body reroutes 
a lot of your resources to um, fixing whatever's wrong. So it creates a physiological disturbance, which can affect the isotope values, potentially, in theory, um, in a way that we can't really quantify. So you might get a signal and you're like, I don't know if that is actually related to diet or if that's a sort of stress response in the body. So on a routine basis, when we're sampling bone, we would definitely avoid pathological bone. Um, in terms of actual the pathological bone itself, it's very new and its, um, its composition is not um, the same as normal bone until it's like fully healed. So it's not really giving you the signal that we would be able to compare to other um, tissues in the body in terms of diet. Also, um, any paleopathologists out there would absolutely hate it if I were just there just drilling away and <laughs> and destructively sampling the most interesting part for them so we, we definitely it, it would be interesting but we definitely try and avoid sampling um those areas to be honest <laughs> look can we just edit out thank you very much Alice the bit where I asked the question <laughs> But that, that's really fascinating. Thank, thank you very much. My, my friend's actually an orthopaedic surgeon. So it's seeing him, obviously now it's all based on screwing in large lumps of metal and things like that. So I suppose in the centuries to come, they're going to have to have to deal with, with that sort of um, pathology as well. But moving on from that, I find that absolutely fascinating. Emma, I, I also find fascinating bed burials. I'm not going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Digging a hole here like a good <laughs> <laughs> Emma, could you tell us about the what you're working on at the moment and the sort of future and sort of exciting developments that are kind of happening in the, the bed burial and funerary archaeology, maybe more generally? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, um, I mean, in terms of the bed burial stuff, because like all of us, I have way too many projects on the go at the same time. <laughs> um, but the bed burial stuff, um, I'm working with a colleague at Stockholm University, is Astrid Notaman. Um, and she is an archaeothanatologist, which essentially means that she looks at the ways in which bodies decay um, in order to tell us more about how they were originally buried. Um, so this is another case of me hanging on to the specialists and <laughs> offering my, my cultural perspective on the, the very clever analysis that they do. Um, but so she looks at things like um, the anatomical um, position of the bones in the burial um, and how they all relate to each other and how they've moved around, um, which, which tells us about how they were originally buried. Uh, and we're interested in this because um, in, in two of the English burials that we're aware of, um, so there's one at Coddenham um, and there's one at Collingbourne, so these are the bed burials, um, it looks like the bed has been dismantled. Um, the position of the fittings tells us that the bed can't have been um, a, an actual bed with the body laid on it. It looks like it's been taken apart and the bits of the bed have been put around the body, which is a really odd thing to do. Um, you know, when you think about some of the things I was saying before about wanting the dead person to be comfortable as they're sleeping, well, if you've dismantled the bed, that's clearly not the case. Well, Emma, just seeing you know, we've all taken apart an IKEA bed and putting it back together again. Maybe <laughs> in the instructions they've thought, I'll just leave it beside it. Be maybe, <laughs> maybe that's what happens. It's medieval flat pack furniture. <laughs> um, but what Astrid can do with her technique is that she can look at the burials and look at the positions of the bones and tell us if the body was um, was buried lying on a bed that's then collapsed 
or if it was placed on the floor of the grave. So in some of these other beds, we can start to get more of a picture of are they actually buried in the bed? Um, are they or, or has the bed been just laid out around them? And then she can start to take that a little bit further um, and look at graves where we've got no evidence for beds at all and say, well, has this body been buried on something which has then decayed and the body's collapsed like a mattress, for example? Um, so there's a few of the Scandinavian graves that I've looked at, which I classed as bed burials. Um, but the only evidence for the bed there is these remains of a mattress. Um, so a couple where you've got really good preservation, where you've got layers of leather and feathers next to them. Um, and in other graves, you might that might have decayed altogether. Um, but Astrid can look and see if there was something like that originally there. Um, so she's heading up a project in Stockholm looking at those sorts of things, which I'm, I'm adding bits to as necessary. That sounds like magic, <laughs> literally. It is. It is. <laughs> so, yeah, incredible. Um, yeah, if you've got any, we'll get that from you. Maybe if there's a link or a project page and kind of thing we can put in the description or just the name mm -hmm. and the research project, that would be so people can keep keep an eye on that. That would be great. But what we also want to plug as well as the, the amazing research that you guys are doing, your colleagues, is the incredible Beneath Our Feet Archaeology of the Cambridge region that's currently going on at the University of Cambridge's Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology, which I believe, to start off with, we've got a revelation for the podcast that it's now been extended and I hadn't noticed. So tell us a bit about that, maybe again, starting with uh, with, with Sam and then Emma talking about the how it was working with this uh, amazing exhibition. And the reason that we've got the, the photos here is uh, Tom Almoroth Williams at the University of Cambridge has given us um, all these amazing photos as well, but you can go and see the actual elements themselves in, in the museum. So uh, yeah, maybe start with, with Sam, then go into Emma to tell us a bit about the exhibition, its dates, and um, yeah, just how your experience was with, with working with this with the exhibition. Yeah, so I mean, all due credit goes to Jodie Joy um, and Imogen Gunn at, at the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology at, at Cambridge. It was their brainchild, um, and I think it came out of all the fantastic recent work and recent excavations that have been found in and around Cambridge, um, and many of those uh, artefacts and things like Trumpington have ended up in their care. And so they wanted to kind of showcase all the brilliant work that's been done recently and make the public aware of what was beneath their feet you know that's kind of why there's the the title because there's certain sites like the ones that Alice has been recently working on where people literally are walking over them every day um and probably have no idea about what's been found underneath the shopping center underneath car parks you know all those sorts of things um and so they had an idea I think about what they wanted to to piece together um and the stories they wanted to tell and then came to us um and other colleagues of ours um from the Cambridge Archaeological Unit and other researchers far and wide uh, to kind of go, okay, guys, let's put this together. Um, and so they um, approached me and Alice about our uh, isotopic work on, on Trumpington and, and Emma about her expertise in, in bed burials in general. Um, for us to help put together a couple of panels to say what happened in her short life, who was she, where was she from, and give that little bit of context, everything we've been talking about today. Um, and it was it was just great getting to to work with them, and it's so nice to be able to write, 
you know, we're so used to kind of writing academic articles that go into the science in, in detail or writing uh, specialist reports uh, for, you know, site reports and writing for archaeological audiences. But to get to kind of write something shorter that kind of brings back the human story, I think was something that we all really enjoyed for the bits that we were involved in. Um, I was only involved with uh, the bed burial aspects, but Emma and Alice can talk about um, the other parts of the exhibition that their work features in. Um, but it's really nice, particularly with this young girl who had such a short life, but was so spectacular in many ways, but very ordinary in others, like we've talked about. It was great to kind of give her story back to people and go, yes, there's this beautiful little cross, but who who was this 16-year-old? Why on earth mm. did she end up here? Um, and with uh, other colleagues, forensic artists who who put her face uh, put a face to this person. Um, we were hopefully, I think, able to tell that in quite a nice way that people will engage with. But I'll leave that up to, you know, the people on Twitter and on Facebook who are commenting on whether or not we did a good job. But I think Imogen and um, Jody did a brilliant job on on Trumpington, at least. Yeah, yeah who was uh, Yeah, Emma. Yeah, yeah. On that. And yeah, it was uh, the thing that drew everyone in with 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 with, with Tom's amazing uh, suppression lease that you guys all worked on was the is it uh, Hugh Morrison was the yeah. forensic artist and that really brings it because again as you were saying there we're, we're used to sort of talking to us it's a very sort of closed sort of audience but you were doing this podcast and, and commercial archaeology in general is this amazing chance to regularly get you know this sort of stuff out to the people who ultimately sort of fund it and and, and go and go and see it but uh yeah um Emma and then and then 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 Alice then you know your experiences then on working on this amazing exhibition yeah, it's great as you walk into the exhibition because the trumping and burial is the first thing you see. <laughs> it really is the highlight of it. Um, so you go in and there's this case um, and there's uh, the the picture of the bones. Um, they haven't got the skeleton itself there. Um, they've got outlines of the bones laid out in this case with the bed fittings all around it as it was found um, and the grave goods laying on the body where they were found as well. So you can get a real... Um, a real sense of what what the burial would have looked like, and then combining that with, with the facial reconstruction, um, it, it does. It's quite emotive, actually. Um, I know some people can be a bit uh, unsure about facial reconstructions because there is a lot of artistic license that goes into it. Um, it's based on the shape of the skull and building up the face from that. But things like the um, the eye color and the hair colour. Um, you know, we don't yet have ancient DNA that can tell us what, what those things were for this person. So that's a bit of guesswork. Um, but I think it is a really powerful tool for helping remind people that this was a, a young woman, this was a person. And you can forget that a bit when you're just looking at a skeleton, when you're just looking at a collection of objects that you were are told were found with a person. It really hits slightly differently when you're told um, this is that person and it's someone you can recognize so yeah it's it's powerful and uh, yeah alice yeah you're now just your your experience of working work, working on the uh beneath, beneath our feet exhibition yeah yeah i think it's um really fantastic and i know the trumpington burial already was really uh, displayed really beautifully in the maa before the exhibition so it's amazing that she's had such uh, recognition and um and such a prominent location in the museum so I think they've done a really amazing job of, of of showcasing her and, as you say, with sort of bringing her to life with the reconstruction and and the information about her. 
Um, but what I think is really amazing about sort of the rest of the exhibition is that it's it's kind of telling multiple stories across the history of Cambridge. So it's putting her into context with other things that were going on before and after. So um, I was quite surprised because the project that I was working on for my PhD was called After the Plague, uh, Health and History in Medieval Cambridge. Um, but we looked at all sorts of different sites and I like quite embarrassingly, I think quite a lot of the exhibition is stuff that I happened to have worked on, but didn't realize it was all going in. So I think there's quite a lot of after the plague sort of medieval experiences displayed there as well. Um, so it's it's been um, it's it's a really surreal experience to have all of our PhDs kind of showcased to this exhibition that we didn't like quite expect. So <laughs> it's it's not it doesn't often happen, but it was amazing. So I'm really grateful to everyone who's worked on it. And as we say, it's open now and it's open till October. That's the extension date now, isn't it? Yeah. I yeah. don't believe if that has officially been announced yet, because if you look on the web pages, it's still saying that it ends on April. Um, but uh, I know about this because I, like Alice, I was involved in other parts of the exhibition as well. Um, so my, my current workplace is Girton College within Cambridge. Um, and we lent some of our Anglo-Saxon collection because in the 19th century, there was an Anglo-Saxon cemetery found on the grounds here. Um, and that's something else that's one of my many other projects that I've got on the go is trying to make sense of some of these 19th century records and, and reanalyzing it. Um, so some of that has gone into the exhibition. Um, we've lent them some of our objects with... Um, and the interpretation panels have got some of my new radiocarbon dates that I've done on those remains. Um, so we've had the request through to uh, extend the loan of our objects until October because the exhibition has been extended for, for that length of time, which just shows to show how popular it is and how well it's gone down with everyone. That's Yeah, it's fantastic. I, yeah, I'd, I'd really like to go and see it. I think I wouldn't have made, been able to make it before uh, April, but now I'll certainly be able mm -hmm. to, to see it. Uh, later in the year and now just last couple of, of my questions and then I, I know Luke may, maybe want to to say a few things at the end as well but you know going back again to the the Trumpington I want to look at it again uh, maybe I'll get Alice first just on a bit a little bit about the osteology just about that because I think that's something we're talking about the bones there or the outlines of the bones I should say in in in, in the exhibition and then just maybe a final word about the context of the, the sort of wider burial ground and, and what's happening there, the context, you know, is there an elite residence nearby or where, where is this person may, may be living? So maybe start with Alice, just a little bit about the, the osteology and then we'll sort of take a bit more of a drawback on the sort of, the sort of wider context. Yeah, so sort of drawing on this kind of idea of building up um, an idea of what this um, individual's life was like, we can look at the, the skeleton itself now, unfortunately, um, and as Emma's discussed with, in terms of preservation of the, the wood from the beds, a lot of the skeletons of bed burials are also not very well preserved, which is really frustrating because it means it's more difficult to do osteological analysis. It's also more difficult to do isotopic analysis. So the Trumpington bed burial, she wasn't particularly well preserved. Her bones um, were quite um, degraded, so it was difficult to kind of um, make a lot of the normal assessments that osteologists would make um, but that was one of the ways they um, assessed how old she was so her bones as you're growing up your bones um, are in 
multiple different, um, you have like epiphyses on the end, which fuse as you uh, grow. So they could use the fusion rates of her bones to really give that quite accurate age estimation of 14 to sort of 16 years old when she died. Um, there didn't seem to be any evidence of any uh, pathology in her skeleton, as I say, mostly due to, uh, to the preservation, but in her teeth, which were actually quite nicely preserved, fortunately for us, she did have some evidence of what we call um, linear enamel hyperplasia. So these are little lines or pits sometimes that you can see in the teeth that are evidence of some kind of disruption to growth whilst the tooth was growing. Now these can be very non-specific. There are lots and lots of different reasons why you might have a little bit of disruption in the growth of your enamel, but it can be to do with maybe nutritional stress or environmental stress or something that just, again, as I was saying earlier about rerouting your body's resources, it's something that means your body went, hang on a minute, let's stop making enamel for a minute because there's something much more important going on and then we'll resume that later. So we can say that maybe during her childhood, she had a few periods of, of some kind of um, event that caused uh, her to sort of stop developing for a little while. Um, but that is the only evidence we have on, on her skeleton of um, any kind of uh, pathology. We don't have any evidence of why she might have died so young. Um, of course, uh, we were discussing this uh, previously with Emma, like something must have happened to have died in her teenage years, but that hasn't left any trace on the skeleton. So it's definitely, uh, we can't really say what was her cause of death. Um, but in terms of the wider context of um, uh, pathology, um, we, we did look into whether there was kind of a connecting reason why these people may have been buried in beds. Was there some kind of other reason? Like we kind of connect, is it diet? Is it this, is it that? Um, and there doesn't really seem to be any kind of osteological connection. Um, one of the bed burials, again, from Edix Hill, has um, she has evidence for leprosy, um, which is really quite interesting. And I think that has led to people thinking, or oh, maybe there's a connection there, but we haven't found evidence for leprosy in, in the other bed burial at uh, Edith's Hill, for example, or, or this one. So I think that's just kind of a coincidence, but um, yeah, the osteology of them is, is interesting. And that's, yeah, so that's, yeah. It's fascinating that again, um, you know, one thing to pay attention to when you go to this exhibition is to to look at the bones, and even though the bones aren't there, just you know, remember that there is a person there, and there are bones there, and that's something that we're 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 learning a story about as well. And there's, I presume, there's more to come when research uh, develops in, in in future years. So, but yeah, then just finish from 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 my questions. So we looked again, again, we've gone down, drilled down into the the, the detail for that. Where was this young woman? What's the context of her burial? We'll start maybe with Sam and then and then and then finish on Emma for that. So what we're we seeing the sort of the fields around it, you know, as far as we can tell, or as far if there's anything we can say at the moment. Yeah, so Trumpington's quite interesting because there's there's four people. So I think people often focus on her, right? And they go, oh, mm. lovely. But actually she's she's one of four. Um and likewise, you know, the the soil just meant that we couldn't we could get varying levels of, of information about the other people um but i think isotopically what i was quite interested about is the fact that it's kind of two and two there's sort of two people there who look more local isotopically speaking and 
the Trumpington bed burial and one of her slightly older female counterparts look quite similar. And so something that we're kind of discussing at the moment is, um, did this woman come with her? Um, and why are there only four people there? You know, where's the rest of the community? What's going on? And so there are structures around, um, you know, these burials. It's it's not like they're just four alone in a field and that's it. There does seem to be houses or halls um, in and around there and lots of other prehistoric stuff. You know, people are in this landscape. It's not sort of devoid and they've decided to put these four people there because they died in some, well, they could have maybe only be four because they all died quite quickly from some event. We're not sure, but they're not put away from where people are hanging about in, in houses. Well, houses, I'll kind of let Emma sort of talk about these, but we don't think it's necessarily um, per se a, a big sort of high status monastic community. We think possibly because of how young she was and the fact that her and this other woman have possibly come so far, that might've been one stopping point before they then got to their end destination. But people were certainly in and around there in Trumpington and maybe that was her final destination, we don't know. And what's interesting with then comparing them to other burials at Edix Hill, at other cemeteries around there, they're not the only ones with those type of isotopic signatures. So there's lots of people coming from, we think, this area close to the Alps throughout the seventh century. So these two women aren't super special in that regard either. So even though it is great that she's so spectacular in her funerary archaeology, and it just so happens that she has come from so far afield and this seems to be linked to Christianity, Christianization, women, all this sort of stuff, not the only one in the area, let alone in all of England at this time period doing this. Um, and there's men that come from there as well, just not in this set of four graves. So I think, again, she is spectacular, but really not as spectacular as lots of people like to make her out to be, to, you know, kind of just, you know, um, not to poo-poo everything we've just been talking about, but she's part of a much bigger network um, and we're finding people like them. So the other two bed burials uh, just down the road in Edix Hill in Barrington, literally where I used to live in Royston, I drive past half the cemeteries Alice and I worked on on my way into the department. Um, there's just a whole bunch of them in all these cemeteries sort of along the River Cam that have these similar isotopes. So people are coming to live in these villages and these four people in Trumpington are just a small part of that. But maybe Emma can say a bit more about who was maybe hanging out in the immediate bit around where these four people are, are plonked in. Yeah, it's quite unusual, actually, to find the burials so close to a settlement. Um, usually the Anglo-Saxons put their dead well away from where they're living. Um, they keep the two very, very separate. Um, and we know a lot more about cemeteries than we do about settlements. So in Trumpington, to have the two of them together is great. Um, it tells us a lot, but it is unusual. Um, I think from the settlement side of it at Trumpington, we don't have a really much evidence for elite behaviour within the settlement. Um, you know, the buildings are relatively small, but that's not that unusual for this period. Um, it really isn't until you get into the sort of eighth, ninth century that you see status being expressed through architecture. Um, in the 6th and 7th centuries, people are expressing their status through what they do with the dead. Um, so the fact that we don't have the elite residents to go along with these elite looking burials, that isn't that unusual. Um, 
And that that certainly doesn't say that you know she she couldn't have been living there because there's no elite residents. Like she could have been living there. Um, or as Sam said, this could have been a stopping off point on the way to somewhere else. So I think um, when we're thinking about Christianity and monasticism, um, the big monastery in the area is the one that we've mentioned already that was founded at Ely by St. Ethelreda. Um, and there's suggestions that that Westfield Farm Cemetery that I talked about before, um, that maybe that was associated with the monastery, because again, you've got those high status Christian women in that site. Um, so, you know, maybe our Trumpington girl was on our, on her way there when she she died before reaching her final destination. Um, but unfortunately, that's, those are speculations. These aren't details we can really prove one way or another. Well, I think that's that's fantastic. Thank you for all of you. I think my questions have all been answered now, but Luke may want to uh, say something now about his impressions of, of this. I have two questions that I'd like to ask about it. The first one is, imagine... You're in a situation where you have like a Ouija board or a medium or something and you can ask this girl one question. What question do you ask her that it's kind of been keeping you up at night that you need to know about? Anybody? Sure. Uh, yeah, we'll start. Uh, start uh, Emma, Emma, Sam and uh, Alice in that order. And we'll, yeah. we'll, uh, but don't worry if you can't. Think of it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's. That is a great question. Um, it's the limiting it to one question. That's, That's the thing. thing That's there. where it's hard. Yeah. yeah. You all get one each. So I suppose there's. Um... <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I think I'm, I'm going to take one of the less obvious ones then that I think is a bit more relevant to some of the things that I look at. Um, and I'm going to ask her what it was like growing up in, in Southern Germany and how culturally that differs to what she found when she got to England. That's an interesting yeah, she'd one. She'd be very bad based. She'd probably let them know. <laughs> <laughs> and Sam? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's such a good question. I mean, I think I'd say, like, why did you travel so far? You know, mm. and and I guess if I could kind of make it a double thing, I'd be like, did you travel so far? <laughs> you know, or uh, what What has your journey been? You know, kind of phrase it like that. So maybe she might kind of do that thing that all archaeologists want, but which is like uh, were we right did we did we get it right so yeah you know did you have a long journey to get here <laughs> you don't want to leave it as an open-ended yeah. question exactly yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> just 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 let the spirits do their thing and type out a very long message on the board yeah that'll be a long ouija board all right <laughs> exactly. with references like, oh. on it underneath She's like, yeah. exactly <laughs> and alice do your thoughts uh, such a difficult question. I think I would uh, I'd go and ask her just so to help out Sam's uh, research project and be like, do you just not like fish? Like, what's going on? Like, <laughs> is, is someone not telling you you're supposed to be eating this fish? Or is it just really hard to get hold of because you're quite far from the sea? I don't know. Um, but yeah, that again, ground truthing some of our, our research <laughs> would be quite gratifying. <laughs> There's some good questions. I like them. <laughs> so the other one, I guess, is more general one um, towards ye. Again, it's a let's imagine question. Let's imagine it's 400, 500 years from now. And morbidly, your bodies are found. What would you like to have been buried with that you think will tell your story? 
that if somebody found that buried with you, they'd be able to piece together your life a little bit. You're not like say troll. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I was definitely going to say troll. Yeah, that's right. yeah. <laughs> well, that does tell the story, I think. Yeah, I think like a lot of archaeologists, the answer is something a bit weird to confuse future archaeologists. <laughs> I haven't worked out what that's going to be yet, but I kind of want to mess with my counterparts down the line. <laughs> so that's a, a great answer. <laughs> you want to prank the future archaeologists, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> 100%. I mean, literally my parents who get kind of creeped out by the fact that I essentially put dead people in acid, <laughs> they know they know that that's what I've said since I was quite young. I was like, I really want to just mess with future archaeologists. But I think if I end up buried in the UK, I'm going to be enough of an isotopic puzzle for everybody being originally Australian. <laughs> They're going to be like, she's really warm. And like, depending on how frequently I've gone back, like what Alice has said, it's quite funny. We, we often do to... Um, with students we get them to do their own hair because you can do this on your own hair to kind of test it out and when I first moved over from Australia Thameson was just like you're going to be weird and I was like rude <laughs> but she's not wrong because the the native grasses in Australia are, are C4 and I hadn't fully thought about that because I was like I get my stuff from the supermarket it's all like C3 she's like no the animals and plants are like local so I'm just going to be enough of a confusion for everybody <laughs> anyway but yeah something else weird in there like Emma said and Alice? I don't know. I think something that really excites archaeologists is when we have named burials, because then you can mm. link a burial to their potentially their life, especially when you get sort of um, uh, post-medieval burials. So maybe I'd have like a plaque with my name on it or something. <laughs> but I also wonder, because I have loads of piercings, whether they would they would all survive in the grave and then someone would be like oh is yeah. this ritual like why, why was she wearing all this jewelry i don't know maybe she was high status definitely not <laughs> I think it, it is interesting to think of what future archaeologists will piece together and how correct they'll be i guess with media the way it is now it, it might be easier i assume to because everything is stored and kept now pretty much online somewhere so It'll be boring for them. The internet survives and well, that's a good access point. all of that information. That's a very yeah, good this, point. This could turn into another dark age. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, on paper records. Think about fun. teenagers now rediscovering the cassette because of Taylor Swift. You know, it's just yeah. horrifying, really. So, you know, who knows? <laughs> yeah, that's that's not even that long ago. So that's in, yeah. exactly <laughs> like that, that is is all of... Yeah, technology becomes obsolete so quickly. To be fair, yeah. What, what you want to do is get some marble. I'm going to have a res gestae. I mean, we're pretty dull, we're pretty short, but I, I want someone to chisel something onto marble and then bury it. And that's that. I want to be remembered by something that I know has a chance of surviving. I think if, if you're asking me, I think if you could be buried clutching a bone from a completely different era, it would be <laughs> a very strange exactly. one to find just holding onto it. <laughs> yeah, get like a mammoth, a mammoth tusk exactly <laughs> like <that>. yeah. <laughs> <Sticking out. laughs> what <laughs> on that note that's all my questions <laughs> um but i just you want to say uh thank you um to to alice sam and, and emma um for giving up so much time because we've been on for about 90 minutes now but i think that speaks very much to the fact that 
it was fascinating and we wanted to know more. And sometimes you get to stage where, oh, we'll skip a couple of questions. But with this one, I felt we're getting so much. And you guys had done such amazing prep on it that it just felt so natural just to continue talking. So, um, yeah, thank you from myself. And I'm sure Luke will say thanks independently as well. But thank you from the Red River Archaeology Group and the Shindig Archaeology Podcast. Um, thank you so much. And we've, we've, had, we've had a great time. So, Luke. Thanks very much, guys. That's uh, yeah. Tom said it all. Really, it was it was amazing. I love getting to sit in on these conversations and hear incredibly intelligent people speak passionately about things. And you definitely did that on this one. And it's great. Cool. So th thank you very much, guys. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll speak to you again soon. Yeah. Thanks so much for having us. <laughs>
story everything about it is fascinating and i'm really happy that i get to sit in and learn about these things with um all these people it's it's so much fun and yeah so it just remains for us to say um thank you very much for listening mm-hmm. um and looks very good at doing the remember to listen to sub- subscribe i can't say subscribe. remember to so subscribe Luke is gonna, Luke is remember finish. to follow remember to like remember to comment always we love seeing your comments on our hannah sims podcast that went out a couple of weeks ago we loved seeing the little bits of feedback underneath that um for our for our award-winning podcast i don't know which side um, you are in terms of this award-winning podcast but yeah let us know what you'd like to see what you liked uh, even what you didn't like we're open to to this we want to improve we want to make this an experience for you it, it's a podcast about outreach and outreach is for the listener for the viewer for the public so let us know what you want to see on the shindig and uh, make sure to hit subscribe hit follow we'll see you next time thank you very much goodbye <laughs>